Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Grams. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2105 of our trek to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we are continuing on our ongoing series of messages I delivered to Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This first series of messages will cover the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for your life. Okay, there. Paul has some papers for the kids too, so. A couple things I failed to mention during the praise time was that I do appreciate all the feedback that we had last week at our meeting, and it was good feedback. I felt a good cohesiveness among our congregation on moving forward in our plans there. So I do appreciate that. And Paula has a couple of special guests with us this morning, her sister Ruth and her husband Joe. Um, they're out of Virginia, and they're in to see um, their mom this weekend. So we appreciate them being here. Joe was a pastor up in Wisconsin for a number of years. So it's sort of hard being up here when you know a preacher's in the, in the congregation, but we'll do our best. Thanks, Paul. And for those that would um, be willing to, to help out with the children's sermons um, in future weeks, we sure would appreciate it. And as usual, I got a few props up here this morning. The scripture reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 5 and verses 14 through 16, or 13 through 16, and it's on page 1501 in your Pew Bibles. Let me read that as we get started, and then I'll read it during the message also, or repeat it during the message. You are the salt of the earth, but if a salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So that's the scripture we're going to cover today. And we're building on our our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Two weeks ago, we did an introduction, which was verses 1 and 2. Last week, we went covered verses 3 through 12, which were the Beatitudes. And this week, the Beatitudes are considered the Christian's character, and we want to move beyond that now to the Christian's influence, and this is the salt and light. Last week, we learned that the Beatitudes described essential characters of the disciples of Christ, which include us. We are his disciples. And as we continue on our verses today with the salt and light metaphor, they indicate the influence for good that we can have in the world even today. Yet the very notion that we as citizens of God's kingdom can exert a beneficial influence on the world should cause us to ponder and consider. Is it really true? Can Christ's disciples, we as citizens of God's kingdom, can we have an influence on today's world? What possible influence could the character traits described in the Beatitudes exert on a challenging and harsh world? What lasting good can the poor and the meek do What can the mourners and the merciful do? What about those who try to make peace and not war? We are not simply overwhelmed, are we not simply overwhelmed by a flood tide of evil that we see in our world today? 
What can we accomplish if our passion is an appetite for righteousness and our weapon is a pure heart? Are we too feeble to achieve anything, especially if we're a small minority in the world? And that's sort of the, the thought we get sometimes that the Christian believers are just a small minority in the world. But what started out with Christ and his 12 disciples has flourished over the centuries to a massive army of citizens of God's kingdom that continue to grow each day. I think we would really be surprised if we understood and realized the size of the believers throughout the entire world. We tend to look at things through our Western world, our Western civilization, and we don't understand how the kingdom of heaven has grown massively throughout the world. Now, it's evident that Jesus does not share the same skepticism that I just mentioned. When God became human in Jesus Christ, it was to continue to establish his plan for a kingdom on earth, which he began in Eden, but was delayed because of sin. And we read in last week's verses, in verses 10 through 12, that the world will undoubtedly persecute the church. Yet it is the church's calling to serve this persecuting world with good deeds. To define the nature of our influence, Jesus used two domestic and everyday elements as metaphors. At the time of Christ's life on earth, every home, however poor, used these two elements. And we still use them today. They're both salt and light. And during his boyhood, Jesus probably often watched his mother as she put salt on their food, and she lit a light at the end of a day when the sun went down. Salt and light are indispensable household commodities. Nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. Now, there, there certainly is an evident need for light. If we didn't have lights, it would be a dark place, especially after sundown. So we have an evidence for light. And salt, on the other hand, has a variety of uses. It is used both as a condiment, as a preservative, and it seems to be recognized, has been recognized since the beginning of recorded history that it is an essential component for the human diet and for seasoning our food. In particular, however, before the time of refrigeration, salt was almost a necessity just for everyday life. It was used to keep meat wholesome and prevent decay. And indeed, it still is. If you salt meat properly, without refrigeration, it will actually maintain almost indefinitely. Can you imagine a world without bacon? I know some don't like bacon, but I'm sorry. Bacon's one of the best foods in the world, I think. may not be best for us health-wise at times, if we eat too much of it. But can you imagine bacon without salt or juicy ham without salt? It gives the flavor to those two meats, and it preserves them. If you've ever had beef jerky, you know, it's in those bags, and you can leave beef jerky out. It won't mold. It won't do anything. It just is dried beef. But it's the reason they can do that is because it's been preserved with salt. The fundamental truth behind these metaphors, and it is common to both of them, is that the church and our modern culture is distinct communities. Remember the last two weeks, and I don't know if I'll bring this every week in our series, but I wanted to remind us Christ is turning the world upside down through a Christian counterculture, and it is up to us as believers, as the church, 
as citizens of God's kingdom to turn an upside down world right side up so that we can build God's kingdom here on earth. And that's the purpose that the, the church and the modern culture have to be distinct communities. Further, the more metaphors tell us something about both communities. The world without Christ is a dark place with little or no light of its own and needs an external light source in order to illuminate it. Now, the world's elites are talking about how enlightened they are. If you hear those that think they are knowledgeable, their knowledge and the light that they boast is in reality darkness. And it reminds me of the saying, there is none so blind as those who refuse to see. The world without Christ is a world that is decaying, just like meat would be if it wasn't treated. The notion is that the world is tasteless and Christians can make it less bland, but it goes so much farther than that. It is up to us as citizens of God's kingdom to stop the decay and preserve the earth. The modern culture, like a slab of meat, cannot prevent itself from going bad. What is there to prevent it from going bad without salt? Only salt introduced from the outside can do this. And we, as agents to build God's kingdom, we who make up the church are placed in the world for this double role. We are to be salt to arrest or at least hinder the process of social decay, and we are to be light to dispel the darkness. When we look at these two metaphors more closely, we will see that they are deliberately phrased to parallel one another. In each case, Jesus makes a declaration. He says, you are the salt of the earth, and then he says, you are the light of the world. Then he adds a provision or a condition on which the declaration depends. The salt must maintain its saltiness, and the light must be allowed to shine. Salt is good for nothing if its saltiness is lost, and light is good for nothing if it's concealed. In Matthew chapter 5.13, let me read it again. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So let's look at this salt. An affirmation is straightforward. You are the salt of the earth. As citizens of God's kingdom, we not only contain salt, which is the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, we are literally salt to the earth. The culture or the earth in this, this passage is de in decay like rotten fish or meat. Have you ever had meat that set out too long or a refrigerator that's gone bad? I don't know that there's more of a repulsive odor than rotting meat. It just makes me gag to think about it. And we as a church must hinder the decline and preserve God's culture so that the world is turned right side up. And of course, God does and has set out two other influences in our world today that helps to retain or at least restrict this, and that's the government and family. And those are by common grace to curb man's selfish tendencies and prevent society from slipping into anarchy. So God has granted those to all people as a means to help restrict the decay in this world. Although we've recently seen what appears to be a decline in the influence of both the family and the government. 
But if you remember back to week one of this series, we learned from King Solomon that nothing is new under the sun. The governments of the world have the authority to frame and enforce laws. Also, there is home, including marriage and family, which help us to maintain order and structure. These both do exert a wholesome influence on our culture. So these when these institutions, the family and the government, are in decline, what happens to society? What happens to the culture? It also goes into decline. And I think we're seeing some of that today. Nevertheless, God intends the most powerful restraints on the sinful society to be the redeemed, the regenerate, and righteous people of God. We, as citizens of God's kingdom, we are his disciples, and, and we are to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, they're constantly changing, as we've seen in the last few years, rapidly, or even non-existent. The effectiveness of salt, however, is conditional in that it must retain its saltiness. Now, strictly speaking, salt, and John probably is better at something of this analogy, but salt cannot lose its saltiness. And I, as I understand it, it's, a pure salt is sodium chloride, and it's a very stable compound that's resistant to nearly every attack. Nevertheless, it can become mixed with impurities, and then it becomes useless or even dangerous. Now, in biblical times, it was thought that salt was actually a mixture found around the Dead Sea, which certainly contained some sodium chloride, but it also contained many impure elements because there was no way to refine it. And because sodium chloride is probably the most solvable, or one that can be washed away most easily of that mixture, when the residue, when it, was, when it was washed out, you would still end up with a white powder that resembled salt, and probably there were merchants of the day that would sell it as salt, but it had lost its saltiness, and it was no more than road dust. And that's why in this passage, Christ said it's to be trampled underfoot. Because all it was at that point is dust. It's lost all of its saltiness. And that helps us to understand this verse a little bit better. Now, Christian saltiness is a character of, that's depicted in the Beatitudes. As a, a committed Christian disciple, we are to exemplify the Beatitudes' character traits in our everyday life, both in deed and in word. For effectiveness, a Christian must remain Christ-like. And the salt of our character must remain and retain its saltiness. Now, not all of us have the same level of those character traits that are listed in the Beatitudes. Some it comes much easier to. Some people are much more meek. Some can mourn easily. Some are more peaceful than others. And those people that those traits come to easily can be like, pour out the salt. And they can see it flow so easily from their lives because by nature, they are much more in tune with the character traits and the Beatitudes. But for some of us who are much more hard-headed, well, God has to grind us and grind and grind until the salt is small enough where it starts to pour out of us. And I could relate much more to this one than I do on this container here. 
So God puts us through the grinder when we're so hard-headed that those character traits don't come out naturally. And we learn by that. And it helps to refine us. Now, if Christians become assimilated with the non-Christians, if we become like the world, then we become mixed and we lose our influence. It would be like me taking a bit of dirt. Now, if I can get this open. And mixing it in with the salt. And we mix it around. Now, how many of you want to put this on your food? But this is what an illustration of what a Christian life is when we become mixed with the world and take on their character traits opposed to the character traits that are found in the Beatitude. We can become a mixture that is no longer useful for what it's intended to be. We're to be salt of the earth. If we, are Christians are, if we as Christians are indistinguishable from non-Christians, then we become like this salt, which is useless. I don't want this on my meat. I don't want this on my vegetables. We might as well be discarded like saltless salt thrown out and trampled underfoot. So that is our illustration of salt. Let's move on to the one about light. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and through 16, I'll read it through it again. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, Jesus introduces a second metaphor with a similar affirmation. You are the light of the world. And true, it was later he said, I am the light of the world. So how do we reconcile this? Since we're believers and we are in Christ, we too are shining the light of Christ, shining in the world like stars in a dark night sky, or cloudless night sky. What, it, what this light is, Jesus clarifies, is our good deeds. He says, your light are their good deeds that we perform. Once others see good deeds, he says, they will glorify your Father in heaven. And it is by such good deeds that our light will shine. It seems like good deeds here is a general expression to cover everything that a Christian says and does because they are a Christian. Every outward, outward and visible manifestation of their Christian faith. Light is a common biblical symbol. In the Old Testament, the prophets said that God's servant would be a light to the nations when they was referring to the prophecies of Christ which has been fulfilled not only in Christ himself as the light of the world, but also as Christians who bear witness to Christ. With both salt and light metaphors, they are tied to condition. Salt can lose its saltiness, and light can become darkness. But we allow, if we allow the light of Christ to shine out of us so that people may see it, we are not like a town or a village that are down in the valley and I think, always think of West Virginia mountains because I think there's some places in West Virginia the sun never does shine because they're so far down in the valley and the mountains are so steep. And when a light is turned on in a valley, it's sort of hard to see unless you happen to be in that valley. But Christ says, 
And let our light shine so that others can see it. Now, do you see any lights up here? Any external lights, other lights? Well, that's because this light was hidden in a bowl. And Christ says, I don't want to shine it in anybody's eyes, but Christ says not to hide your light in a bowl, but to set it on top, out so others can see it. And this is what it means for us as believers. If we had the light contained within us and we don't share it with others, it would be like that light underneath that bowl the whole time from when you came till now, you didn't realize there was a lit light under that bowl. People will see our good deeds and seeing our good deeds, that light shining, they will glorify God. For they will inevitably recognize that it is by the grace of God that we are what we are, and our light is his light. And that our work are his works to be done in and through us. So they will praise the light. Now, if it was a totally dark room and I turned on the light, would you say, man, that's a nice flashlight? No, you would praise the light because you would then be able to see, and that's the same way with God. They will see the light, which is God, and glorify him. We don't want the modern culture to glorify us and to praise us. We want to point it to God because it is his glory that's important. We as imagers of God do exhibit certain family qualities. And even those who condemn us, as it said in verses 10 through 12, they may persecute and condemn us, even so they may glorify God for the very righteousness that they persecute us with. The salt and light metaphors that Jesus used have much to teach us about the Christian responsibility in the world. And let me see what the time is. Hang on here. We're getting close. So I may have to cut a little bit out of the message today so we don't go too far, far over. But there's three lessons to be learned. There's a fundamental difference between the Christian counterculture and the modern culture. So the modern culture has our world upside down. We as a Christians, as citizens of Christ, of his kingdom, we're to turn the world right side up. We're to be salt and we're to be light. And the lessons there are that we cannot become indistinguishable from the world. God's kingdom and we as his believers are to be as different as light from the darkness and as different as salt from decay and disease. When we serve neither God nor ourselves, nor the world, we are attempting to minimize or eliminate the differences between us and the world. We become tasteless, hidden believers. The second lesson is we must accept the responsibility which this distinction puts upon us. You must, simply must not fail to do what you're called to serve, as you're called to serve. You must be what you are called to be. You are salt, so you must retain your saltiness and not lose your Christian flavor. We don't want to be bland in this world. We don't want to be like everyone else in this world. You are light, so you must let your light shine and not conceal it in any way. So if I concealed this light, 
no one would be able to see. It's only when I shine that light, people will be able to see if I become mixed with dirt, I won't be any use for seasoning or for preventing decay. But what we see in today's world is a culture that has become disenfranchised with things the way they are. Now, part of this, I think, has been fueled, maybe on purpose. But we see that many in today's world are crushed by the machine of modern technocracy, overwhelmed by political, social, and economic forces, which control them, but they have little control over. They feel victims of a circumstance that they are powerless to change. And we don't see this many times as believers, how people turn to violence and looting. And some of the things that we've seen in recent months, how they can justify that. But it's because they are disenfranchised with the way the world is. And they're dedicated to violent overthrow of that system. Although we've seen it in the past, I think recently in the last couple years, last decade maybe, some of these, these um, feelings coming back out and being fueled again. But we as citizens of God's kingdom also feel frustrations. We've, we're frustrated with the way people are acting. We're frustrated with people taking other people's lives. We're frustrated with people robbing and pillaging and damaging the very things that they're supposed to be standing up for. So what are we to do as believers? Because from that same soil of discontent and frustration, revolutionaries for Jesus can arise also. And we can be equally dedicated to activism, and even more so, but instead of violence, cancel culture, critical race theory, and wokeism, we are committed instead to spread love, joy, and peace. A peaceful revolution is more radical than any violent program, and its standards are more incorruptible because we have the ability to change hearts and minds, for real, and not following an, an agenda. So we're not so helpless or powerless after all. We have Jesus Christ, his gospel, his ideals, and his powers, and through Jesus' teaching, we can apply them to our own lives. We are all savory salt and a brilliant light in a dark and decaying world. But we must be salt ourselves, and we must let our, salt, our, our light shine. And as I summarize this next section, the lesson three, we must see our Christian responsibility as twofold. We need to stop and help those that are in need of help but in order to change society, our modern culture, turn the world right side up, we need to change the very institutions that are allowing that decay to foster in our world. We need to, as the, the, the Apostle Paul said, the first vocation is to be salt. And the Apostle Paul paints a grim picture at the end of the first chapter of Romans of what happened in the society in his day when it suppresses out love for evil and the truth it, it, it knows by nature. The society deteriorates. Its values and standards steadily decline until it becomes utterly corrupt. And as Paul wrote, when men reject what they know of God 
God gives them up to a distortion, distorted notions and perverted passions until society stinks in the nostrils of God and to all good people. But are we content with staying in our containers of salt? What good is this salt in this container going to do us if we don't use it? Or this pretty container with the grinder on it, if we don't allow our salt to impact the world, it's no different than this being up in our cupboard and we never use it. It won't impact anything. In the same way with our light, if we keep it hidden, that light will not impact the world. What does it mean to practice to be the salt of the earth? Well, to begin with, we as disciples must be more courageous, more outspoken, and standing for truth. It must be that our standards for our modern culture, maybe it's been our standards for modern culture, have slipped to the point where our culture is seeking for a good Christian um, evidence. Christian salt takes effect by our good words as well as our good deeds. God created both the family and government structures, and we as believers need to build those family and government structures back to where there is justice in them. Too often evangelical Christians have interrupted or interpreted society's social responsibilities in terms of only helping the casualties of a sick society. And we've done nothing to change the structures that are actually causing those casualties. It'd be like a doctor who only treats patients but don't help them with preventive medicine. And I think we're seeing a resurgent now where we see more people interested in preventive medicine opposed to just treating the symptoms. But if we as Christians don't help with that preventative medicine in our society and we only treat the symptoms of it, then what good will it do? No, I think we honor God with the food pantry and giving food to those that are less fortunate and helping there. But as believers, as Christians, to turn the world right side up, we need to get to the very core of what's causing some of that. Yes, we need to help, and I'm glad we do. It's, it's a gracious ministry. But we also need to change the world to the impact where we change some of those issues that are causing that. We as disciples should concern ourselves with what we call preventative social medicine and higher standards of moral hygiene. However small our part may be, and some of us may not have a huge impact in this, we cannot opt out of seeking to create better social structures, which guarantees justice in legislation and law enforcement. We need to work for freedom and the dignity of an individual, not necessarily over the rights of the, the common good, but we need to have civil rights for minorities and the abolition of social and ethnic discrimination. Now, some of it, I think, is propagated falsely in today's scenario, but we need to make sure that we ourselves are pure in what we do, that we're salt and light. We should neither despise these things nor avoid them as our responsibility. But as fallen human beings, we need more than to be barricades to stop the violence that's happening in some of our cities from preventing them from becoming as bad as they could. We need to 
We need regeneration, a new life through the gospel, which is our second vocation, which is the light of the world. The truth of the gospel is light, and it's contained, indeed, in fragile earthenware lamps. Now, when you look at this light, do you necessarily see the lamp it's contained in, and it contains it? No, we look at the light because it shows us and helps us in the darkness. The truth of the gospel is light, and we are called to both spread the gospel and frame our manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. The world needs both. It's bad, and it needs salt. It's dark, and it needs light. Our Christian vocation is both. We as believers, as citizens of God's kingdom, have to be both light and salt. Because Jesus Christ said so, and that should be good enough for us. The Beatitude sets an extremely high and exacting standard. It may be helpful, therefore, as we conclude the message, to consider what we've just learned to note about the righteousness of Jesus Christ and what we as believers is the result of that. Well, first of all, this is the way we will be blessed. The Beatitudes identify those whom God declares blessed are those who please him and who find themselves being fulfilled because of that. True blessedness is discovered in goodness and nowhere else. Secondly, this is the way the world is best served. Jesus offers his followers immense privileges of being the world's salt and light if only we live by the Beatitudes. Christ left this earth purposefully in order to allow us to take our place in this world. And thirdly, this is the way God will be glorified. Toward the beginnings of his ministry, which the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount was preached, was at the very beginning of his ministry, he tells his disciples to let their light shine, that their good deeds might be seen by their Father in heaven and be glorified. And he also tells, tells them to be salt. And at the end of his ministry in the upper room, he expresses the same truth in similar words in John chapter 15, verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So the metaphors of salt and light are what we're to be as believers in this dark and decaying world. Is there hope? Oh, yes, there's hope. Because if we do our part as citizens of God's kingdom, eventually, within God's timing, it may be a short time, it might be thousands of years. We don't know. But God's kingdom will come, and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a guarantee. But it takes us as being salt and light in order to fulfill that God's purpose for us that started back in Eden, his plan never changed. His kingdom will come. And there's three reasons. It brings blessings to ourselves. It brings salvation to a, counter, or to a culture that's steeped in, in decay and darkness. And ultimately, it brings glory to God. And that's our utmost purpose, is that glory for God. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you so much for this time in your word about salt and about light. Help us to be both, Father. Help us to take these two vocations you've given us seriously, that we might get outside of our salt container, that we might turn on our light and shine to a world that's decay and decaying and in darkness, and that you may, may receive the honor and the glory in all things that we do. We lift up your name. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.